King County 911, what is the location of your emergency? Okay, ma'am. Hello? Yes, I need you to take a couple deep breaths so I can see what's going on. What is the address where you need us to come? Okay, what, what is the telephone number you're calling from in case we get disconnected? I don't know this number. I know my cell phone number. Okay, what is that number? It's 304-565. Okay, who am I speaking with? My name is Russell Faria. Russell, what's going on there? I just got home from a friend's house, and my wife, my wife killed herself. She's, she's, she's on the phone with her. Okay, Russell, I need you to calm down, honey, okay? I need you to calm down, take a couple deep breaths. We're going to get somebody on the way there, okay? <laughs> what What did she do? Do you know? She got a knife in her neck and she said your arms. <laughs> okay, okay, calm down, honey. <laughs> The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, I'm sorry we didn't have a show last week. The flu caught to me, ladies and gentlemen, and i tell you what, it put a beating on me like I ain't never seen. Had me down for a little more than a week, really. My voice probably still sounds a little different. I'm still battling things from it, so we do apologize. I am a one-man team here, so when I go down, unfortunately, production and editing and things like that comes to a halt. <clears throat> so I apologize about that, but I have a doozy for you today. That 911 call you just heard was made by a gentleman named Russ Faria. Now, if you've ever come across a show, I believe it was on Hulu called The Thing About Pam, Pam Hupp, you will know a little bit about this case. But if you're not familiar with it, Russ, after that 911 call, became the lead suspect in his wife's murder. Now, there's a lot of details that go into this that you're going to hear. Russ is going to break everything down for us very, very well. Um, over two hours we talk here, so strap in. It's going to be a long one. But imagine coming in and finding worst-case scenario, one of your loved ones with a knife sticking out of their neck. And then not only do you have to deal with the pain of losing that loved one, finding them like that, then the short-sightedness of the police finger you as the lead suspect, and you eventually go to jail for it and spend over three years in prison and until one lawyer stepped up and kind of you know made this his work to get russ out of prison and to get him another trial and to get the real killer behind bars russ was incarcerated wrongfully convicted for the murder of his wife for over three years. This is an amazing story, folks. So strap in and check out this episode of Crime and Entertainment with Russ Maria. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crime and Entertainment. I have here today 
an individual with a really, really crazy uh, and in some ways definitely tragic story, a miscarriage of justice for sure. Please welcome to the show, Russ Faria. Russ, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's no problem at all, man. And I'm, I'm glad you could join us because you have a very, very interesting story, a wrongful conviction that I think needs to be heard because as we spoke on the phone privately, a lot of people don't realize how easy it is to get put in prison for something that you didn't do uh, until it happens to you. You just don't think that you, people I think are under the impression, ah, oh, that doesn't happen. And you are here to tell these people today that they're a damn sure wrong. Is that correct? <laughs> oh yeah. It happens a lot more than what people realize. Absolutely. Um, so we'll kind of start from the beginning and, and work our way forward. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Uh, well, I grew up in a suburb outside of St. Louis, Missouri, a uh, little town called Florissant. Not really a little town, but um, grew up there and uh, around 17, 18 years old. We moved out to uh, St. Charles County, about, uh, about another 30 minutes west from where Florissant is. So we're about 40 minutes away from uh, the city of St. Louis, west of it, and to O'Fallon, Missouri. And uh, so I kind of grew up in Florissant and uh, spent my later teens and 20s out here in the country. It was country then. Of course, it's a little bit more suburbs now. Right. And uh, I spent uh, most of my 20s here and just hanging out. And then I met a uh, young lady when I was in my late 20s by the name of Betsy Meyer. And uh, she worked at a local convenience store. Uh, the reason why she worked there was because she also owned a DJ business. And so that kind of allowed her to kind of keep those hours, you know, it's a little bit more flexible for her. Yeah. And uh, we'd talk a lot whenever I went in there, chat up a little bit. And one day she actually asked me out uh, to go to the casino. And so we went to the casino and hung out and, uh, Eventually, she asked me to start helping her do some DJ shows. I'd always kind of been interested into that kind of thing. I like technology. And I'm kind of a techno geek, uh, if you will. And yeah. so I got into that. Then we kind of started building a relationship with one another. Eventually, uh, 2000, we got married. Wow. It's always nice when they ask you out. It kind of takes the pressure off a little bit, don't <laughs> Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I always have to wonder if I'm going to, if I'm going to come on too strong or not enough. And when you, you kind of get that green light, when they give you the green light, then I can just kind of be myself and, and, and roll with it. Um, so, when a woman asks you to the dance and you know, you, uh, you're in there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so you guys get together, get married. Uh, unfortunately a little bit later on down the road, she gets diagnosed with cancer. Is that right? Yes, in uh, early 2010, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. She had to go through a mastectomy. And then, of course, all of the uh, chemo and radiation and everything that goes along with that. Right. Now, <clears throat> was it a, I mean, did they, was it, would they try to treat it off the start? Obviously, I know with chemo they tried, but, you know, was it something that they thought at the time was going to be curable or was it a little bit more grim situation? Well, it was, uh, 
it was stage three cancer, but uh, they were pretty positive about it, uh, pretty optimistic. Uh, she went through all the treatments and whatnot. And early 2011, she was declared cancer free. Really? And uh, so she went about getting uh, reconstructive surgery on her breast. Right. And uh, there was some wounds from that that just weren't healing right. And and I believe it was October of that year, 2011. Uh, also, during that time, she planned a, a celebration cruise, you know, because she's now cancer-free and we like to go traveling and stuff. Right. Got a lot of friends and family to go, and that was scheduled for November. And uh, in October, she went to see her primary doctor about these wounds that weren't healing just right. And the primary doctor called us when we were out of town. To let us know that we probably need to go see our oncologist again. Oh boy! And we did that. Went through some. Uh, she went through some more testing and found out that and this was the first time I ever heard of this. But breast cancer can occur in other places in your body. In this case, it was in her liver, and it was inoperable. And so you know you have to ask the hard questions and get the hard answers. Hmm. We were told that she would have three to five years to live. Wow. Um, yeah, I wasn't aware of that either, that breast cancer could travel to other areas of the body. I mean, I, obviously, I've heard that it can spread, but uh, not when it's still being classified as breast cancer. Um, yeah, it's just the, the name of the cancer. And uh, I learned that that time. Wow. Um, I've lost about every grandparent I've had to cancer. Uh, it's one of those things that I just wish we could figure out a way to to get a cure for because it just, you know, it, it withers them away to nothing. And that's not how you want to, you know, remember a loved one. Um, especially, you know, when you're close to them like that, uh, I'm assuming she was going through a lot of these chemo treatments. You were there, you were helping out, but take us through one specific day that kind of changed your life. Cause by this time she was, she, she was fairly sick here at this point. Wasn't she? All right. Well, off and on it, you know, people with cancer and that, you know, that they have good days and bad days. Right. You know, so she'd have good days and she'd go play tennis or go hang out with friends or what have you. And on bad days, you know, she'd lay around the house, and stay in bed or right. stay over at her mother's house, you know, about 30 minutes away. Um, she decided that we would go ahead and go on this cruise that she had planned. So we did that in November and had a really good time. And then Christmas came around and, yeah, you know, when uh, somebody's terminally ill, you know it. You know, you try and take a few more pictures this Christmas. You know, you don't know if they're going to be around anymore. Right. Or, uh, you know, just do some more special things that you might normally do. You know, so we were doing the family stuff and uh, had to do three or four or five Christmases. I don't know. Everybody does multiple Christmases these days. Yeah. yeah. But uh, with extended families and whatnot. And so we did that. And then, uh, Christmas was over, and on December 27th of 2011, uh, I had a normal Tuesday date with several of my friends to go play some games and hang out uh, for a few hours, and she had stayed at her mother's the previous night because she had chemo, and I was supposed to bring her home, and uh, in the evening when I was leaving where we lived up in Troy, Missouri, it's about 30 minutes or so from O'Fallon. She messaged me and said, you know, uh, that her friend Pam was going to bring her home. 
And I thought that rather odd because for me to come and get her from where I was would have been uh, and was uh, would have been about two minutes out of my way. And for her friend Pam to take her home would be more of an hour trip, round trip out of her way. But uh, so I said, you know, hey, uh, all the way to Troy. She said, yeah, she asked and I accepted. So, so, all right, that's fine. I went and hung out with my friends, ran some errands and that on the way. And then uh, afterwards, stopped and got me a sandwich on the way home over at the local Arby's and drove the 30-minute drive home. And when I arrived home, walked in the door, uh, I encountered a scene that I wouldn't recommend or encourage anybody to, to see. I saw my wife uh, dead on the floor in a puddle of blood. And... Uh, I guess I maybe jumped to conclusions myself because uh, you talk about a person that was one terminally ill, had suffered with depression and bipolar uh, for most of her life, and even threatened suicide a few times in the past. And I saw cuts on her arms and a knife in her neck, and I assumed that she committed suicide and called 911 and reported it as such. You reported it as possible suicide? Yes. Wow. Um, now whereabouts and how was this like in the living room or? Yes. She was in the living room floor in front of the, uh, love seat. That we had. And for people, this, oh, I mean, obviously very few people are going to have to go through something quite that traumatic, but for people that have, you know, that you don't, everything is just kind of a rush. You know, you're not thinking with the, the clearest mind at the time to look around at other things, but you know, it didn't seem that there was a struggle or anything like that. Obviously you walked in, you're focused on your wife. Um, did, is that what the, really was the first thought to come to your mind that she may have decided to take her own life? That was immediately what came to my mind. Uh, yeah. the house was kind of a mess because it had been Christmas two days prior. Right. So, I mean, Okay. Couldn't really tell, I guess, if there yeah. was a struggle or not. Pro- probably were things kind of probably boxes and paper wrapping everywhere. Exactly. So now, uh, when you call nine one one, what? How did they handle this? Because I've heard some other podcasts that you were on where you say that a lot of that nine one one call was used to against you, so to speak, in in court. And that's one thing that I don't agree with is how in the hell can you take someone's nine one one call and use it against them? Because you don't know how somebody's going to react, especially seeing something like that. And I heard that call. Um, as a matter of fact, I'll probably play it in the intro to this episode, but I heard that call and to me, and I think any logical person, you sound like somebody that is in a state of panic in a state of shock. And it's true. Uh, they tried to uh, say that that call showed no emotion at all. And uh, the 911 operator actually was doing her job. They do things to say things to you, get you to do things to try and calm you down so they can get information from you. And so you have periods of that, you know, going to being upset again. And they had that person's supervisor try and come in and act like an expert and say that. You know, that was all staged or whatever. And they never asked the 911 operator herself to come testify in that first trial. 
Right. I've seen uh, some clips of that. They they said that, and she said that she thought that she could tell that it was genuine. Yes. And uh, she actually, we knew each other kind of a little bit because we went to the same church. Right. So we knew who each other were. We'd actually spoken in that. So she, when she realized it was me, she actually had asked to be taken off of the call, but could be, because uh, I guess they were busy or whatever. And uh, so she had to take the call and it was very upsetting for her as well. No, I believe that now. And I mean, I, I, if, if I'm stepping on toes here, let me know and we can skip it, but I'm just kind of thinking outside the box as a, as a third party, you know, when you seen the, you, the knife was actually still in her neck. Is that correct? Yes. Did you take that out? No, I didn't touch anything. You didn't touch. Okay. Well, that, I was going to say that was. I mean, you would think if you walked in and seen a level with something like that sitting at the your first instinct would be to take it out. Um, and then at that point, then your prints are on the knife. So then it's really, you know, going to be a bad look. So that was a, a smart thing on your part. Um, did they, what, a, a dispatch an ambulance immediately? Uh, the first uh, thing they did was send the police there. And uh, once the cop arrived, you know, uh, the 911 operator told me I had to go let him in the house. At that point, she let me go. And I went and let the officer into the house. And then shortly after that, there were uh, paramedics and fire uh, EMTs and that. But uh, the officer, I guess, cleared the house and had me go outside. Mm-hmm. Now, police officers, and I don't know how it works, so they're where you're at. I know down here. Um, they can't actually do anything. Like even if she was still had life left in her, they're not allowed to do anything related to the victim. They have to wait until the ambulance gets there. I don't know if that's the same way up there or not. Uh, I'm not sure what the law is regarding that. Um, but I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who, uh, unfortunately committed suicide and I was nearby the house when it happened. And I was one of the first ones to go in the house after it happened. And obviously, you know, we called medical, we called 911 requested ambulance immediately. Um, some cops got there before the ambulance arrived, but they said, we're not allowed to do anything to try to help them. We that's the ambulance's job. They could be there. Like you said, sweep the house, make sure there's not still a threat, but they couldn't do anything medically to help out. They weren't allowed. Um, well, when they come get her, uh, what are they starting to question you right off the bat about what you've seen? What, what was the vibe that you get? Because at this point with what you just seen, the fact that they're going to try to eventually twist this on you has got to be the furthest thing from your mind. You're obviously, you're, you're more worried about your wife and, and her situation, but how did it, what was the tone after the ambulance came and, and took her? Well, uh, what they did was. Naturally, the officer went in and cleared the house, had me outside. It was cold. I didn't even have a jacket on. The fire trucks arrived there, and the EMTs, they actually gave me a blanket to wrap around myself, which you see in a lot of the videos. Yeah. And the officer ended up taking me to his car while the detectives were in there. And at that time, during that time, is when they removed her body from the house, and then the detectives came out. And got me and says, you know, hey, we'd like you to come on down to the station, answer some questions and whatnot. And, you know, 
help find out what's going on here. So at that point, I didn't think anything of it. I was going to help the officers. Right. And so I went down to the police station with them. And obviously I was very distraught. They started questioning me. And there were a few times when I asked, you know, hey, am I under arrest? And I said, no. Um, I had asked to make a phone call to my mother several times, multiple times, and kept being told no in that respect as well. I didn't know at the time I was being observed by a pinhole camera. And, uh, you know, you have two or three different detectives come in and ask you the same questions over and over again for about 36 hours straight. Wow, you were there for that long? Yes. Get the fuck out of here. And then, <laughs> then at the end of 36 hours, they asked me if I wouldn't mind taking a polygraph. And so I said, yeah, sure. You know, I've got nothing to hide. I've been telling the truth. I didn't know. But, you know, during that whole time, they were out sending people out, confirming everything that I told them. Right. You know, and questioning others. And uh, so they said, oh, you want to take a polygraph? I said, yeah, sure. And uh, so they had to bring me because they didn't have the uh, equipment to do that. Lake St. Louis or in uh, Troy. They brought me to Lake St. Louis about 30 minutes away to do a polygraph. Now, to this day, I couldn't tell you if that machine was on or not. Uh, what I do know is at the end of it, I was told that I failed a hundred percent, which is impossible. You can't fail a hundred percent. Yeah. But, and if you're ever asked to take a polygraph, they're going to tell you you fail. That's, part of the whole thing. Well, I've always been told that you don't need to take the some bitches anyway, because it really does no benefit because they're not even admissible in court and they're not reliable. They're yeah. Not admissible. Yeah. They're not reliable and they're not admissible. So the worst, I mean, there's no good that can come of it. Exactly. So if, if you, if anyone's ever asked to take a polygraph, it doesn't matter if you're guilty, not guilty, much like this story right here, tell them to go fuck yourself and don't take anything. Cause like it's, it's like I said, there's no bit. If you take that and pass it with flying colors, they're not even going to bring it up in the courtroom that you did it. It's, exactly. It's it's useless to do that. Um, now I know a lot of times that that's a tactic they will use. Oh, well, if you got nothing to hide, then you might as well take it. Don't fall for that shit. Um, that's just that's a that's a tactic they use and uh. So they told you they failed a hundred percent. And like you said, that's impossible because they, I think to get a baseline, they have to ask you shit like your name and where you live and stuff like that. Stuff that you're going to pass. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So when, when they tell you that Pat failed a hundred percent, that's just a lie right there. Right. Somebody's lying somewhere. And then usually uh, the, the result that they tell you, they're going to tell you, you failed. Even if you passed it, they're going to tell you, you failed just to see if you crack. Um, so what was the what was the point here? And you've not slept this whole time. I had not slept the whole time. I mean, I might have dozed off once or twice. Right? Yeah, but, cat uh, nap, but not not actually got to lay down and catch some shut eye. Right. So, and so I mean that contributed to the polygraph being unreliable right there. Right. Um, so they told me that I failed this thing one hundred percent, and the ensuing. It was about a 45-minute conversation between myself and a detective by the name of Ray Floyd. And he accused me, and I said I did do it 77 times over 45 minutes. 
Wow. And at the end of that, I said, I want a lawyer. And he said, you're under arrest. You could be in handcuffs. And we went back to Troy, went to jail. And that's when I finally got to make a phone call to my family. And my cousin, Mary, and I uh, had a mutual friend who was an attorney. His name was Andy Bean. And she called him, had him come up and get me out because they can hold only hold you 24 hours without charging. Right. So they didn't charge me at that time. Okay. That was my next question. Did they charge you or did they just hold you? I guess for questioning, I guess would be the right. So my friend, the attorney came up there and said, you've had this guy longer than 24 hours. Yeah. You need to let him go. And they did. And I went home, planned a funeral and had a funeral. And then on January the 4th, police came to my mother's house and came in there and placed me under arrest and formally charged me with the murder of my wife. So this is uh, for like six months later? No, no. This is like, it happened on December 27th and literally a week later. Oh, you said January 4th. I'm sorry. I thought you said July 4th. I'm sorry. No, January <laughs> Oh yeah. Okay. So a week now. Okay. Wow. Um, so they, they tried, <laughs> they gathered whatever bullshit evidence they thought they had in that short amount of time. Yes. And I mean, it was a lot of bullshit evidence. For instance, they had released the house to us at one point and my family, my cousins and my sister went in there and cleaned the house before I went in and got some clothes and things to bring back to my mom's. Right. Um, and then a day or two before they arrested me, they decided they wanted the house back. And that's when they took a lot of, uh, now famous 132 pictures, uh, with the luminol and said that there was evidence of a cleanup. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Yeah. Yeah, because that's something that a lot of people don't know either is when something like that happens and there is, you know, obviously blood and, and stuff like that, they do not clean that up. That is up to you to clean up yourself. And when they release that house back to you, then you got to come back and you have to clean up that mess. Now, you obviously you can hire somebody to do it, but the point is they don't do it. The, the county or city, they don't do it for you. You have to do that on your own. Exactly. Um, so do they charge you straight with what murder one, uh, how did, what is the charge? I got charged with murder one and armed criminal action. Wow. All right. So now at this point, you got to be thinking, I don't know what the hell, what are you thinking? <laughs> uh, well, I just. I can't even understand what's going on. It's like, I told everybody the truth. I've been telling the truth since everything. And then still they're arresting me for something that I didn't do. And I was just, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, my cousin, Mary, she comes up a lot in the story. She was kind of a champion for me on the outside. Uh, she fortunately remembered that she had worked for, uh, this young attorney uh, many years prior when he was just starting out and now he's an accomplished attorney by the name of Joel Schwartz. 
And so she called Joel and said, uh, you know, hey, do you remember me? And he said, yeah. And she says, well, I don't know if you've been watching the news. This guy in the news, Russ Faria, he's my cousin. And he didn't do this. I need to retain you. And so he immediately got to, he hadn't seen the case in the news, obviously. Right. Um, and followed it a little bit, but he thought it was somebody that obviously killed their wife. There was a ton of evidence against me. Uh, because that's what the media portrayed, right? Exactly. Initially. And uh, so he started putting some things together that night, came to me the next day. And uh, we met for, I don't know how long, probably over an hour. And he realized that that wasn't the case. And, and uh, you know, hey, this this is just a big mix-up. He says, I'm going to have you out of here real soon. And I said, okay, you know, I took his word for it. He seemed like a, you know, uh, the impression I got from Joel then and now and every time in between is that he believed me and he believed in me. You know, and so I, I retained him at that time. And then he went to meet young prosecutor, Leah asked. And part of that meeting, he realized it wasn't going to be just a couple of weeks uh, because she wasn't going to budge at all. And uh, so he started doing his own investigation into everything that went on. My cousin, Mary, was doing a lot of the legwork on that, Mary Anderson you've seen in many of the date lines mm-hmm. shows a very prominently in the story here. Um, so she was doing a lot of legwork herself and turned over to Joel and very early in there was this person that kept coming up named Pam Hupp. And, now that's the lady uh, you referenced earlier that gave your wife a ride home. Yes. And there were just a lot of inconsistencies um, it appeared that the police didn't question her thoroughly at all. And this was the last person to have seen her. Uh, there were interviews where they'd ask her the same question multiple times throughout, I don't know, a 30 minute or an hour interview. And she'd have a different answer every time they asked. You know, so there were a lot of red flags that for whatever reason, the police were either not seeing or were ignoring no, no lie detector for her, I guess, either. No, and in fact, when they went to question her husband, normally, when they questioned my four alibi witnesses, they took them all four to four different police stations and questioned them all Separate. separately. Yeah, so they, and could, they did that twice. So they couldn't get together and, and come up with a story and, and all be in line. They took them separately. That way, there's no chance of them possibly talking and communicating with one another. Right. When they interviewed her husband, Mark Hub, they did it in their living room. They didn't even ask her to leave the room. They asked him his name. He said his name. And then after that, you heard 45 minutes of Pam talking and he didn't ever say a word after that. Oof, mother, what the fuck? So as of right now, because... <laughs> I'm trying to go through this piece by piece because I want to get everything out and let everybody know the steps that I don't want to gloss over anything because you don't ever know if you might find yourself in this situation. So you need to be looking for things like this. And if right now, if I'm an outsider looking in, I'm seeing that they rush to judgment thinking it was you because obviously, and you know, statistics prove that a lot of times if it's a woman 
or a husband that's murdered, a lot of times the, the spouse is the number one suspect and sometimes might be the one that done it. So I can totally get them questioning you and having you as a suspect. That's almost a formality at, to some extent. Right. But to to charge you so quick, that's the thing is I don't get because you have there's no statute of limitations on murder. You can take your time, collect your evidence, build your case, check out all the leads like stuff with this Pam woman, you know, figure out what don't add up. Then you can make an arrest. You don't have to rush to make an arrest. So they've already got you in jail and they're pinning this murder on you. If they turn around and let you go and then try to put it on her, it makes them look incompetent. Well, my attorney even told the young prosecutor, you know, because she'd say, well, you know, it makes me look like a fool because I've already gone out there and said, we got our guy. He said that he would make her look good and, and smooth it over for her with this, with the media. And he had the ability to do that, you know, but she had wanted no part of that. Um, of course, you're talking about somebody that was having an affair with several of the police officers. Um, Whoa. A couple of them that were involved in my case. Shit just keeps getting thicker here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. So now they're not backing off. Um, and your attorney at this time knows that this is probably going to be a little harder than you think. Now, this comes out. It's a lot of the reason you got a new trial. So I don't want to jump too far ahead. But there was a lot of evidence that was suppressed, mostly of which implicated Pam and not you. Did you, What was the reason that they give you, or, or I don't even know if you got one, of why this evidence was suppressed? Uh, well, I don't know if we'll ever know exactly why it was suppressed, but uh, you're talking about a prosecutor that went to high school with the judge so presumably, you know, they're buddies. In fact, you know, they'd been seen around town together. So the judge was a new judge as well. And basically did whatever the prosecutor wanted her to do. Let her talk about my motive being the fact that I didn't get the insurance, but wouldn't let my attorney talk about the insurance. And I think that's a lot of the reason why uh, when we were awarded a hearing that the original judge recused herself. I would hope to hell so. So, I mean, it sounds like to me that the town, you're, you're getting good old boy real good. Oh, yeah. We have, uh, there was, when I was arrested, uh, it was Patrick Hardy and Ryan McCarrick. And Patrick Hardy was the driver in the police car. It was a detective car. Uh, Ryan McCarrick handcuffed me, put me in a seatbelt in the front seat, promptly got in the back seat, put his service revolver to my head and said, if I even breathed the wrong way, he was going to paint the windshield with my brains. He proceeded to hold that gun to my head for an entire 30-minute bumpy car ride to Troy. What the hell? This is also the person that called me out of my cell not once, but twice without my attorney present. Oh, hell no. They ain't supposed to say shit to you without your attorney present. That's that's considered a federal offense. Right. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, do you have, like, I'm assuming that you had, you had to have, like, a pretrial in the beginning. Did they deny bond? Uh, well, we had a very large bond, said over a million dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah, see. So, I mean, the bonds for, for murder, they can range anywhere as low of 100, I think, is the lowest, and then up to a million or more, I think, depending on the, the mm -hmm. you know, the 
reach and the capabilities of the person. Obviously, when you're talking to somebody, you know, super, super famous, they can make it as high as they want to. Um, so they had your set at a million. Yeah. Right. So you're going to have to come up with a shitload of cash to get out of that. Um, right. And there was no 10% surety on that. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's no 10% on that. Uh, no, no bondsman's going to be able to take payments for quite that long either. So no. did your attorney just pretty much have to tell you, you're going to ride this out. You're going to have to ride it out in here while we do this. More or less. Yeah. And, uh, so I would help as much as I could with giving information right. and that throughout that time. It's crazy how and, much you have to do, how much of the legwork you have to do yourself when situations like this happen. I mean, they say that it's innocent until proven guilty, but that's the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my fucking life is guilty until you pay out of your ass to prove that you're innocent is what it is. That needs to be the new slogan right there. Throw that innocent until proven guilty shit out the window. And, And if you can't get out on bond, yeah, there's not a whole lot that you could do. Yeah, you're so. you're handicapped, and then at that point in time, you're having to rely on other folks that are in the free world to be able to do it for you. And I was I was fortunate enough to have a lot of those folks. Yes, know, that is that's great. A, that's wonderful. As um, I mentioned, my cousin Mary, I have my sister, numerous other family and friends were all supporting me, either. You know, doing some of that work or put money on my books because if anybody's ever been in jail or prison, uh, you know, you, you need money to get by yeah. and get some of the things that some people take for granted. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the things that most people take for granted in life, things in there are necessities. I mean, toilet paper, toothbrushes, food, you know, get stuff out of the commissary, things like that. I mean, putting money on books is is a godsend because a lot of times, if, like you said, if you don't have a good support system, and you go back to high nose walls and you don't have anybody to help you. That makes the time a whole lot worse. I mean, don't get prisons, not a fun place to be any fucking way, but when you're in there with no help and no money, it's, it's even worse. Oh yeah. Um, so how long was it from the time you get in there to you actually went to trial? Well, I was arrested in January and then our trial was supposed to be in November. And the original judge we had was a guy by the name of, Dan Dildar. He was a very fair judge. Good guy. Uh, he wasn't putting up no shit from the prosecutor or anything like that. Uh, but he was retiring at the end of that year. And Leah Askey knew that. So about a week or so before the trial was scheduled, we had a pre-trial hearing. And my attorney spoke to me before we went in. He says, you know, hey, she's going to try and have this delayed again. And, uh, She's going to get try and get another continuance. He says, I'm not going to allow that. He says, I'm going to say the only ways, we'll, the only way we'll accept that is if you could lower the bond so this man can get out, help work on his case. He said, the judge is going to say no to both of those. We're going to go to trial next week. and We'll have this over in no time. And sure enough, we went into the courtroom. And that's exactly what happened. So I was looking forward to going to trial. I was really excited about it when I went back to jail yeah. from the courtroom. And then the next day, I get a visit from my attorney and says, uh, well, here's what happened. After that thing happened yesterday, the prosecutor dropped and refiled your charges. What that does is if you're in jail awaiting trial, there's a line, per se. Say, just like at 
McDonald's or wherever you go to eat, there's right. a line and you wait your turn. And when your turn comes, you're at the front of the line. If they drop and refile your charges, you go from the front of the line all the way back to the back of the line. What she did that because she knew my trial wouldn't come up until after the first of the year when her friend would be in as the judge. Motherfucker. Now, do you have to have a reason to do that? I didn't know that was possible. Do you have to have like a legit reason to do that? Or it just, no. No. They can drop and refile your charges at any time. And you don't have to and, be rearrested. I was about to say, you don't have to be rearrested. You're already in fucking jail anyway. So, right. Ooh, that is, I did not know that. It's a stroke of a pain. <laughs> so, her workaround was to put you at the bottom of the pile, so to speak. And you're, you're not going to get there until after that judge is already gone. Wow. Right. So, we waited until the following November before I actually got my truck up. So in there again now, almost year and a half, two years. Yeah, close to two years yeah. at that point. Wow. Yeah, yeah, close to two years. Um, so I mean, going into this trial now, where are you thinking mentally? Are you still thinking there's no fucking way I'm going to jail for this? What is the what is the feeling from your lawyer? your friends and family on the outside. What are you, what are you thinking going into this? Well, we all felt really confident, positive about it. Uh, going in, we figured we'd get to say our piece and, you know, you're going to be judged by a jury of your peers. And, uh, you know, these people have to see the right thing, you know? Uh, but we went into trial and there were a lot of things that we should have been able to present again that, Joel kept getting cut off and I described it mostly as uh, watching a boxer with one arm tied behind their back. Mm -hmm. uh, Muhammad Ali never would have been a champion if he had to fight with one arm. Yeah. You know, uh, and that's what Joel was being uh, restricted in that way. And the judge was giving Leah her way at every turn. However, uh, I thought we got enough information out there that there was a reasonable doubt. And that's what, you know, jury's instructed to do. But if there's a reasonable doubt that you don't convict. Right. Uh, that said, you know, they went to recess. Several hours later, they came back with a verdict that purely devastated, you know. Wow. I mean, what did you think when that verdict come down when they read it? I mean, your your heart just had to drop hearing those words that they were, you were found guilty, especially knowing that you had nothing to do with it. Oh yeah. It, it destroyed me. What, what hurt the most was hearing my mother and my family and friends behind me, you know, uh, and there's nothing I could do. I could go to them or even look at them. Yeah. You know, and then they rushed me out of the courtroom and back over to the jail. Wow. Um, as devastating as that is, I'm sure your lawyer's telling you, you know, you're going to have to appeal this. Uh, the fight is not done. It's definitely to use a boxing term. Like you kind of went to earlier. It's definitely a haymaker from hell, but it's not over. What was y'all's next plan or mode of action there? Was it to try to get a, uh, an appeal? Yeah. Joel immediately, uh, 
filed for a mistrial, which was denied. Um, and then he, he immediately started working on the appeal. And it was a few weeks later that I got sent from jail to prison and uh, went to a place called Fulton, which is what they call an R&O or receiving an orientation center. Uh, it's kind of a prison you go to before you go to your permanent prison. Right. And uh, a lot of folks don't know about that. So I can't try and clarify. But, uh, mm-hmm. So I went there. And at that time, there was a local reporter by the name of Chris Hayes that followed my case from the very beginning. And he had been putting updates out there on my case, like probably once a month since I was arrested. He was the only reporter that was in the courtroom for the entire trial. And uh, Joel informs me that this guy wants to interview along with the guy from the local newspaper. I says, okay, I think this is a good idea. He's like, oh yeah, you know, we're going to get this out there in the news now. And uh, shortly around that time, I was also informed that the folks at Dateline NBC wanted to interview me, which was really kind of amazing. So uh, we lined up those interviews and they came to the prison and interviewed me there. And that's where I first met Keith Morse. <laughs> wow. And so they, they didn't try to squash that or keep that from happening at all because I got to think if they know they railroaded you pretty good at this, they might be a little nervous when people like that come around and your story at that time now is going to be seen by a whole lot more people than just inside that small town. Did they try to put a kibosh on that at all? Or they didn't really, didn't really bother. Well, prison doesn't really care. Right. They don't know. They, they only know you're there. This is your charge. You lost. They have to take care of you. In jail, yeah, they probably would have never allowed me to be interviewed there. Right. But prison's like, okay, if you want to come talk to this guy, come talk to this guy. Okay. You know, and it has to go through channels. But right. uh, it went through all that. And I had to sign off to allow me to be filmed and everything in, in both instances. Right. And uh, so they came and interviewed me and really well. But I didn't get to see any interviews. Right. Because I'm in prison. And by the time the Dateline, they, they take months to edit yeah. stuff, of course. Uh, by the time that aired, I didn't have access to a TV where I was until I got to my permanent prison. So I didn't get to see any of that. Most of the people I was in prison with didn't see any of that. The local news was over 100 miles away. So we were getting to different news than what they were getting here in St. Louis. So. Nobody in prison really knew me. I kind of got to remain anonymous uh, in that respect. Right. Just kind of keep my head down and made the friends I made. Uh, wasn't at Fulton very long before I got transferred to Jefferson City Correctional Center. And uh, that was supposed to be my permanent camp for the rest of my stay. Now, how long and, did they get? I don't know if I asked that question. How long did they give you? I was sentenced to life without plus 30 years. Life without plus 30 years. Yeah, that's a little thing Missouri does. If you uh, happen to use a weapon in your particular crime, whatever crime it may be, they tack on that little thing called armed criminal action. So whatever your crime is, I had murder one. So there's only two punishments for that. One is life without and the other is death. So I got life without. And then they tacked on the maximum penalty for armed criminal action. 
which is 30 years. So if I could have completed a life sentence, then I would have had to serve another 30 years on top of it. Right. Now, what is life? Is life 30 years itself or is it 25? What is it life? Uh, it keeps changing. The last I heard it was around 30 or 35 years. Yeah. Uh, so essentially long as you save us 35, they're wanting you to do 65 years in prison before you ever see the light of day. More or less. Yeah. yeah. You're going to be gone by then. I mean, right. Yeah. I wasn't, <laughs> um, uh, well, that, I mean, so, that's the idea. They want you to just basically stay in there and to, and never come out was their, 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 their look, their thought process. Um, how so long I got busy, uh, yeah, got ahead. busy in prison and found out, you know, out of dummy, you find out that the average time for an appeal is about 10 to 14 years in the state of Missouri. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, uh, I was looking at, okay, so we're going to try for an appeal, but I'm still going to be here for, you know, a very long time. Yeah. So when did you get the news broke that you're not going to have to wait quite that long? Well, it was in, uh, I believe it was late February, early March of 2015. Uh, I had gotten a job at the kitchen and I came home from work that afternoon. I worked morning shift and I was told that my attorney wanted to talk to me and I had to make a call to my attorney. So I called Joel and uh, Joel doesn't get a whole lot excited about things. You know, he kind of plays things close to the best. And I could tell he was very emotionally excited about something and happy about something. And he asked me, did you watch the news last night? Anybody that's in prison, usually you watch the news every night. That's your connection to the outside world. Yeah. So I says, yeah, I watch the news every night. And uh, what are you talking about? He says, well, what did you see on the news? I'm like, I don't know, the usual shit. <laughs> and I says, you know, I don't get the same news you do. I live. 150 miles away from you. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're getting a complete different news than I am. He goes, Oh, okay. And he says, well, we got a moody motion. So what the hell is a moody motion? And, uh, that's a motion that says that new evidence has come to light. They could have made a difference in the original trial mm-hmm. and whatnot. And the appeals court, uh, I think they were just really looking for a really good reason to send this back. Cause as you said, uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, my case got a lot of publicity. Now it's been on Dateline local news quite a bit. And I think the appeals court knew how egregious it was and was looking for just a really good reason to send it back. And Joel gave them that. And so they wrote a, a statement to the Lincoln County courts and said, just kind of a summary is you better have a hearing to see if this guy gets a new trial and, if he doesn't get a new trial, we're going to be mad. So that said, the judge, the original judge, Chris Minimeyer, recused herself from the case. And we eventually got assigned Judge Stephen Omer of St. Louis. A really good reputation. Joel knew of him. And uh, really good reputation as a fair and honest judge, uh, even to the point of being a whistleblower. So he even seen uh, his own peers doing things unethical or malicious, he would report them for that. So we knew that was going to be a great judge, and that's that's who we went with. And then in June, we had our hearing, 
And the judge had ordered us a new trial. Wow. Immediately scheduled it for that November. Moreover, he put the barn in more affordable uh, cost and left it at that. And I went back to prison. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't there very many, very long. It was maybe about three or four days before prison. Got the paperwork from jail saying that I was no longer convicted. At that point, it's illegal for prison to have me there because they can't house people that aren't convicted with convicted people. So prison didn't want me anymore, and they sent me back to jail. Wow. Okay. I didn't want to go to jail. I like prison better, but uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. I've heard uh, that from a few people that they prefer prison uh, over jails. I mean, I've even had some people that told me that they were in a whole different type of situation than you, but some guys that were like real high up in the echelon of of drugs in the city of Detroit. And he said that when he got his 12 year sentence, that it was almost like a vacation. Like he just, he needed the break and he just went in there and relaxed. Well, I don't know what we'll call it vacation. Uh, <laughs> not for me, but uh, prison is just a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe jail. for him, if you're risking getting shot or killed every day in the street, that might be a vacation for the average guy like me and you. Yeah. I don't think that'd be right. a vacation for us. But, but, uh, so, I went back to jail, and uh, when I got back there, about a couple days, I got a visit from my family. My cousin Mary, my sister Rachel, my mother uh, came to see me, and they were now we're back to a visit between the glass. In prison, you have a contact visit for four hours. In jail, it's one hour. You have a phone. They have to talk through, and uh, they kept telling me, "We're going to get you out of here soon." And I said, yeah, well, I've been here soon for over three years now. Yeah. And uh, your definition of soon where you're sitting and my definition of soon where I'm sitting. It's two different, different, different definitions. Yeah. Yours might be tomorrow or next week or maybe even next month. That's soon. But my, my definition when I'm on the inside, my, my definition of soon is yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but about two days after that, uh, I was uh, moving around. It was my day to call my mom because we kind of had scheduled days and times to uh, you know call home and whatnot. I got on the phone. I couldn't get through. So I went ahead and took my shower. You know, you do your morning routine and stuff. It's no different in prison than it is anywhere else. You just have a bunch of guys around um, or in jail either. So I uh, got on the phone to call my mother again. And the CEO opened the door and said a phrase that anybody in jail or prison knows. They own it only means one thing. And he said, bunk and jump. And that was prefaced by my name. And I looked up from the phone. And I said, what? And he said it again, bunk and jump. That means get your shit. It's time to go. Yeah. And as I'm in jail, I know I'm not going back to prison. I know I got to be walking out the front door. And indeed, uh, they, my, my family had put a uh, bond for me with the bonds person. And I got up front and signed some paperwork. The bonds person uh, promptly told me that they were going to stay behind while I walked out because there was a bunch of media out there, and uh, they didn't want they didn't want to get on TV. So uh, I walked out, and that was the first time that I got to uh, hug my mother on the outside of a prison or a jail over three and a half years, really? almost to the day. I was about to say since that day. You never, well, since they arrested you, 
which was a week after that happened, you haven't been back at free man since to that point. Right. And essentially, right. So and even then, three and a half years to the day. Yeah. And even then you're still not free. You're just on bond. Right. And I was just on bond, but at least I was outside of the walls. Oh yeah. And, uh, we went and had a, a nice party at a local bar and the news outlets came along. Dateline came on, but moreover, I got to reconnect with, uh, much of my family and friends that I didn't get to see for the previous uh, few years. And, uh, many of the people that I did get to see supported me and, uh, had a nice celebration and then went about preparing for my next trial, which was scheduled for amazingly enough, November. Here it is that month again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so during that time, uh, there was a lot of things going on. Pam changed her story several times again. Um, now she uh, evidently saw me and somebody else in a car when her Betsy pulled up to the house. Amazingly enough, that was kind of almost the same story that uh, Detective Harney and McCarrick brought up to her and kind of described to her uh, in an interview that's now been televised several times. Uh, so at any rate, then there was a point when Joel says, how about this thing called a bench trial? And I says, okay, well, what's that? And he explained what it was. It means there's no jury. The judge yeah. just hears your trial. Yeah. And my cousin Mary and I had been previously discussing the fact that we didn't want a jury uh, between the two of us. Uh, by that time, I'd heard about an individual that amazingly enough, was released on the week that I was convicted from the same prison where I served my He had served 10 years there, a guy by the name of Ryan Ferguson. If you don't know who he is, look him up. I looked uh, up his case after you and I talked privately. So you know who he is at this point, and uh, if your listeners don't, it's uh, his amazing story as well. Well, we'll be reaching uh, out to him for sure real soon. <laughs> I could hopefully accommodate that for you and help facilitate that. But uh, that would be wonderful. I'd heard about him and I'd done a little research on him. In fact, when I was in prison, there were a lot of people that knew him uh, and said, you ought to get his lawyer. And I said, no, I'm going to stick with Joel. And I think that worked out for me. But uh, there was another individual I met in prison that Ryan was also friends with. His name is Rodney Lincoln. I know I mentioned him to you out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, his is another amazing story. At any rate, uh, but Ryan and I had some similarities in our case, whereas the state attorney general's office had assigned a special assistant to the prosecutor in my case by the name of Richard Hicks, who had made a lot of negative comments about Ryan's case as well. Uh, very highly publicized. But the most important thing was we were both convicted by a jury from Lincoln County because Ryan, in his case, had gotten a change of venue. Right. And I didn't want to give a jury from Lincoln County a chance to strike out one more time because, you know, yeah. three strikes. <laughs> like, they've already fucked up twice. And uh, pardon my French, but yeah. they have. And I don't want to give them another chance. So, Joel, that's my <laughs> lovely woman. When Joel mentioned the bench trial. Hello. <laughs> uh, I was all for it. So, let's do it. And so, we went ahead with the bench trial. Uh, in the days and weeks leading up to the case, there were these uh, 
pictures that were mentioned in the first trial uh, that one of the detectives, Mike Merkel, had said they didn't turn out. The camera was malfunctioned, and the malfunction has since been fixed. But we had asked for the camera, the film, the digital, whatever, for all of this time, and it has never been produced. And amazingly enough, anonymously from Leah's office with a stamp with her signature, so she didn't actually sign it, Joel received a package with a DVD in it that contained 132 photographs from the crime scene. That Detective Merkel had said showed the luminol trail, but since they didn't develop, they showed absolutely nothing. But he said he saw this luminol trail. So we received these photos, and that was big. Yeah. Came from his office, and that should have been included in the first discovery a couple of years prior. But uh, so that was big. And then there was. That's, that's considered what I think is the term is like a Brady violation or something like that, where they had the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, well, we thought Leah had it sent over, whatever, you know, it came from her office. Um, also, during that time, all of a sudden, Pam had been telling the police about this letter that supposedly was on Betsy's camera. And you got to find this letter. She'd been evidently telling about this letter for since the beginning. And about two or three weeks before the trial, all of a sudden, this letter comes up that was on Betsy's computer that supposedly written by Betsy that she was afraid of me and talks about all kinds of things I was doing. The whole pillow over the face thing that Pam had told police about before. Uh, the letter was entitled P doc P dot doc. Now I was an IT professional in my previous life, uh, went to school and I got a degree in stuff. I know a lot about computers and I know, how to look and analyze a file when I see one. And what jumped out to me initially was that that file said it had an author of unknown. And without going too much into detail, if you have a computer and you sign on to it and you make a document in Word or whatever, yeah. then you're the author. Yeah, the author, you're the, the computer. If your wife signs on author. under her name, then she's the author. If it's an author unknown, that means that computer doesn't know where that file came from. It came from either an email or a thumb drive or somewhere else. Yeah. And I pointed that out to Joel and I said, you need to get your IT expert on that because he's going to confirm everything I just told you. Joel did. The guy did. And so that was another really big thing going into the second trial. And so we go into the second trial and Leah's opening statement. She said, you're going to hear about these photos. And at that point, Joel and his co-counsel, Nate, and I looked at one another. Joel says, she doesn't know we have these pictures. <laughs> because she was acting like the pictures didn't come out. And uh, lo and behold, when Mike Merkel took the stand in the second trial, Joel started grilling him about these pictures after Leah questioned him. They didn't turn out. didn't turn out. He just kept on sitting there perjuring himself a second time Wow! until Joel produced this folder and slammed it right there on the stand and said, open that up. Oh my God. That had to be such a good fucking feeling to know that he had him on the stand and he's lying his ass off. Oh my God. I can't imagine the, the, 
I don't know, goosebumps or whatever had to be going through you and your lawyer knowing oh, yeah. that they're fucking herself right here. Something serious. Oh yeah. We were just beside ourselves <laughs> with like, holy cow, this is huge. Cause as soon as he produced that, the prosecutor looked at Joel and says, where did you get those under her breath? So she obviously didn't know. So there was a whistleblower in her office somewhere right? that sent those pictures. And Joel proceeded to have this uh, detective look through these pictures, you know, several of them at random say, does that one show absolutely nothing? Does that one show absolutely nothing? Obviously they showed something. And that's what Joel was getting to the point of. He says, they showed something. They didn't show what you wanted to show. So you said they showed absolutely nothing. Your camera didn't malfunction. You lied. And yeah, <laughs> that was, that was huge. very huge. Wow. So now with a bench trial, obviously there's no need to wait for a jury to deliberate. As you said, there is no jury. Did the judge just come well, down? The, what? Go ahead. The judge deliberates. Yeah. The judge. Deliberates. So, so how long, I mean, did he, did he even have to go to his chambers and, and pour a glass of whiskey and, and think about what he said when he slammed his gavel down or what? I mean, <laughs> Well, I, I think uh, he spent most of his time during that recess uh, formulating his statement that yeah. he was going to read. And uh, so they recessed for lunch. And he actually had said this was a Friday. He said, I'm going to give my uh, decision next week, probably. Um, so we thought we were going to have to wait the weekend at least. But then it came down that he was going to give his decision that day. And what was taking so long was the printer upstairs had malfunctioned. And so he was having trouble printing out his document. And uh, during that time, a few hours in there, uh, Joel and I and my cousin, Mary and a couple friends were out of somebody's car and uh, Nate was upstairs and your attorneys are required. If the prosecutor makes an offer, they're required to tell you about an offer so that you can decide whether you want to take it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nate calls down to Joel and Joel looks at me and says, well, she says, uh, she reduce you to soft life, which is life with the possibility of parole. If I would plead to manslaughter. And I said, I ain't even going to plead to a parking ticket. She can take that and shove it right up her ass. That was my exact words. That was Joel's exact words back to Nate. I'm sure Nate's back to her. Um, shortly after we called back into the courtroom and we went upstairs and, all rose for the judge standing there while you're listening to the judge's statement, which uh, I don't know how long it lasted. It might've been five minutes. It might've been 10, but to me, it seemed like a lifetime because I only wanted to get to the end of it. Uh, regardless of what the statement said, I wanted to hear the verdict and he got to the end and said on the account of murder in the first degree, I find you not guilty. And on the account of armed criminal action, I find you not guilty. At that point, I turned to Joel's co-counsel, Nate, and uh, we had a nice embrace. And I think he was more or less holding me up uh, in the miniseries. That's Joel doing that. But in real life, it actually was Nate. Yeah. And because uh, my legs kind of gave out at that point. It was a, a joyful, joyful moment in my life. Amen. And uh, we went and walked, walked out of the courtroom and truly free man at that point. And it was uh, a great feeling. Well, good for you, man. I, I, I liked it. That's what your, that was your answer to that bullshit plea 
because that's what that's what happens, man. When they know they're fucked, they're gonna come back and they're gonna offer a plea, which is soft life. <laughs> that ain't really after what just happened in there. I don't even know if that was that was kind of a slap in the face anyway. After the ass beating they just took in that courtroom, I wouldn't even have took that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. but but that's the risk you know you take because you don't know. A lot of times, you know, the move your lawyer made to go with that bench uh, trial was a little different. But, you know, even when you have original trials or whether it's a second trial or whatever, you don't know what they could come up with. So when they offer you a plea, those are things guys have to take in consideration. So if you're facing murder one, which could carry a life sentence, if they come to you, even if they think their story is flimsy, if they come to you and they say, okay, we'll, we'll do a, a manslaughter, which could be four to 10 years. Obviously that's still four to 10 years. You're going to lose your life, but it's not life in prison. So that's a carrot that they dangle to see if you're going to take it. And, and a lot of times people do, um, a lot of guys do. Yes. Yeah. They'll, they'll do that. Especially if somebody has been sitting in jail for two and a half years waiting on a trial. So you got to figure if it's four, you know, they'll say, okay, well, I've done, done two. You know, what's another year? Maybe get out and find me. And I'm just spitballing these numbers, but those are the kind of the deals that they do because all they give a shit about is a conviction. They want the conviction. They want that on their record. They want it to look good. And then you and I have talked, you know, on the phone, prosecute. I keep fucking this word up. Prosecutorial misconduct. Um, and prosecutorial immunity. Yes. Which kind of, uh, and immunity that. <laughs> where they can, they're not liable for all this because they railroaded you. They, they buried evidence that would have set you free, or at least, you know, let the jury, the first jury, you know, make a better informed decision. They, they railroaded you as far as getting you in there for the judge that they wanted. And at the end of the day, they don't have to answer to a fucking thing. No, they have part blanche. They can do it to anybody. I tell people all the time because of prosecutorial immunity, you have a potential to have thousands of serial killers in our country and they call them prosecutors. Yes, absolutely. They just don't, they just might not put the knife in directly. They just put you in prison for years. Right. But I mean, if you're a party to murder, I mean, if they put yeah. you to death, yeah, absolutely. send you to prison to your death. Yeah. That they're a party to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I even look at it that way. Yeah. Um, that's something that needs to change. It does. It's one of the things that I, I go out there trying to raise, raise awareness for, uh, because it, I think it needs to end and, and people that are like-minded mind think it needs to end at the very least. It needs to be rewritten in such a way so that it can't be abused. Yes. Like now, the way it is. Even if you want to take away uh, the immunity is just a bad part. Even if you want to do something to where you can't try for it, if it happens, if they're found good, they lose their license or so, something along those lines where they can't keep doing it. Because if you know you can do this with immunity, you can just keep doing it. I mean, if they know exactly. there's no repercussions and for whatever, in any reason, another fact, they just don't like you. They don't like your beard. They don't like the way you look your demeanor. They don't like the side of town you on, where you went to high school, what, whatever the fuck ever, whatever reason, it doesn't matter. And, and they get no repercussions for it whatsoever. I think if you remove prosecutorial immunity, your wrongful convictions are going to go down Drastic. by a very, very large number. I'm not going to say it won't happen, right? but I think it goes down by a very large number. If prosecutors know that they can be held accountable for what they do to people. 
Absolutely. Um, so we're here. You're a free man. Um, obviously that's was at this point, priority number one, but probably a really close priority. Number two needs to be finding out exactly who did that to your wife. What they tried to say you did at what point did they come to Pam? Because I don't know if we've come out right and said it, we've alluded to it, but we'll get down to this point. Now, Pam actually is the one here that's responsible. When did she finally get hers? Well, the story continues and it has many twists and turns, as you've probably seen. Yeah, when I was listening to that, that it was fun. even involving like uh, other people that were almost murdered. When I, I was like, damn, I went from one story to another one. I kind of had to pause and take a drink and, and map out a little timeline here. So, yeah. So, I was exonerated in 2015, in November. I have national exoneration number 1701. So that's, I'm exonerated. Nobody can say that I did that ever again. Yeah. Um, and uh, started trying to get my life back on track. Of course, I didn't have a home or a job or anything like that. Uh, so I was staying at my mother's house. And 2016, uh, well, during that time, Joel had gone back to Leah Askey and said, you know, hey, if you want to continue to investigate this, I have all this information over here on this other person and uh, she refused. And uh, so he turned over everything he had copies, obviously to the U S attorney's office. And he even made the bold statement of, Hey, if you assign me as a special prosecutor, I guarantee you a conviction. Um, so the U S attorney started looking into it. Obviously they started questioning the prosecutor and somewhere along the line, she let her buddy Pam Pup know, that there was a new investigation by the U.S. attorneys that had nothing to do with her. So Pam got scared because she knew there was a lot of evidence that pointed towards her. And she went out, for lack of a better term, she went out hunting. And she approached a woman uh, that lived in the neighborhood near where I live, uh, actually lived across the street from one of my best friends. And at first I asked the woman, hey, do you babysitter, you know, babysitters or something. And the lady was, uh, you know, kind of the, the neighborhood mom. She kind of had all the kids at her house all the time. So she kind of threw a red flag to her. She started talking to Pam and, and Pam changed her story to uh, that she was a Dateline producer. I wanted to do a soundbite. And so this, this lady was a little curious and intrigued, you know, maybe a red flag up there. Then Pam tells her she can't bring her cell phone or keys, nothing like that, because the producer don't like clutter. Well, she went in the house in her hoodie or whatever. She put in uh, two knives <laughs> and then came back out, got in the car. And then Pam's saying a bunch of other things. And she got even more red flags and said, you know what? Let me out. I got to get out of here. I forgot something on the stove or whatever. She made up an excuse to get out of there. Yeah. And Pam took her back home and she made sure Pam pulled in the driveway where there was a security camera aimed right at the license plate. And she left. And then uh, this girl called the local police in the county, St. Charles County, and let them know about this strange individual driving around the neighborhood, claiming to be this and that. You know, gave them some information and said, you know, hey, I have a video if you want to see it or whatever. Well, about six days later, Pam approached and found a, a disabled gentleman had been in a car accident years before, had a mentality of a 12-year-old. 
and uh, coaxed him into getting into her car, promised to give him some money to do a sound bite, took him back to her house, and made one of the most fake 911 calls you will ever hear. I mean, a five-year-old could read from a Dick and Jane book better. Uh, and she shot that man on the phone five times and killed him. God damn. And when I heard about it, first thought that crossed my mind was she's going to try and involve me in that somehow. And sure enough, a few days later, I got a phone call from my attorney. The police wanted to talk to me about this stuff that went on over here in O'Fallon. Here we go again. He also assured me that I wasn't really a suspect, but since she had thrown my name in there, that they were doing their due diligence like the other police should have done. Yeah, I was about to say, it's prior. about fucking time five years later to do your due diligence. <laughs> right. So this new police department, this is in a different county. Uh, she had put a note in this individual's pocket that was presumably from me uh, demanding to get my money and whatnot because she'd gotten this insurance money. So I had to go down to the police station and I gave them handwriting samples with my right hand, with my left hand. I even let them have my phone for three days so they could see everybody I've texted and everywhere my phone's been because that was one of the things that exonerated me in my trial the second time around. And again, I was never a serious suspect because they knew that she had done it, uh, but they did investigate me, and I was excused as a suspect. Uh, during that time, this happened in the city limits of O'Fallon, Missouri, which is inside of St. Charles County. So the St. Charles County police said, hey, you know, we got this phone call a week ago from this girl over here, and this sounds really familiar, like these things could be connected. So that's when they went and talked to Carol McAfee, that was the girl's name and brought her down to the station says uh got all the information from her got her video and confirmed that it was pam that was at her house and uh so she was getting threatened by pam's son and that so they put a police detail on her and i would see this police detail when i went over there to visit my friend and he kind of filled me in a little bit, what he knew. He's like, it's got a little something to do with you, you know? And that was that. Well, one day, uh, I think she was at my buddy's house and I pulled up there. She was telling him, you know, hey, uh, next time you talk to your buddy, Russ, you know, tell him, I really feel bad for what he's had to go through. And, you know, it was saying a lot of things that I hear from other folks too. He says, well, you know, you can tell him yourself. He's pulling up right now. And uh, so she did, you know, Hey, my name's Russ. And I'm an asshole. She says, well, I'm Carol and I'm a bitch. So we should get along just fine. <laughs> uh, that was, that's very true. It happened. And uh, so we shook hands and we became friends. Uh, started hanging out. And I was trying to help her out because I knew she was going to be a witness, the star witness against this person. And I was letting her know who this person was you know, kind of preparing her for all the attention that she was going to get. Because yeah. There's been a lot of attention around this uh, for years now. And so we did a lot of hanging out in my front yard, listening to music and whatnot. And then the trial came up and uh, Pam took an Alfred plea, which means 
uh, you're admitting you're not admitting guilt, but, but you're admitting that the state has enough evidence to convict you, which is really kind of a cop out. But yeah, regardless of the matter, she took an Alfred plea and uh, that was the day when she was sentenced when I got to meet Mr. Ryan Ferguson, who I'd been kind of on Facebook communicating with. Again, I've mentioned him a few times and uh, we hit it off right away. And uh, actually went out for drinks to celebrate Pam going to prison. And uh, but shortly thereafter, uh, Carol and I started dating. And uh, this past October, the girl that you saw right here behind me give me a kiss on top of my bald head. <laughs> well, that's Carol. <laughs> uh, we got engaged this past October. We have yet to set a date, but um, that's happened. But moreover, this past July. Well, congratulations. Here, thank you. Uh, this past July, the new prosecutor in Lincoln County, who used my name as part of his running platform, he said he was going to look more and reopen that case, look into it again. Uh, so in July, he charged, formally charged Pam with the murder of my wife, Betsy Faria. Uh, moreover, he went into, there was a whole press conference uh, that his investigation has led in some different uh, directions. And he's uh, found evidence of corruption in the police, prosecutors, and he's investigating them as well. So there's a very good chance that there are some uh, crooked detectives and cops that are still out there being cops uh, that might serve some prison time uh, in the future, and I get to testify against them this time. What a uh, what a damn turn of events that would be, buddy! Wow. Now yeah. I seen actually you posted something not too long ago about one of the cops that uh, had something to do with your case. You what was that exactly? Well, uh, most recently, and then. Uh, the first person to get this. All right. Um, you remember the name Raymond Floyd that was way back at the beginning of the story. Yep. The guy that accused me over the course of 45 minutes. And I denied over the course of five, 45 minutes, 77 times. And then he put me in handcuffs. Well, I was in a local bar in my neighborhood around here this past Saturday and uh, having some drinks with some friends that were in from out of town. And these two individuals came over to my table, a guy and a gal. And this person looks across the table at me and he says, I don't know if you know who I am. And I stood up at that point. It was all women folk at my table. And I says, ladies, Raymond Floyd. And uh, they were all kind of aghast because they all knew my story and knew the part that he played in it. And uh, I can tell you, uh, between you and I, that he proceeded to give me one of the most sincere and heartfelt apologies that you've ever seen or heard in your entire life. This gentleman truly felt bad, didn't make any excuses for himself. And we had an hour-long phone call, or conversation, not phone call, I'm sorry. But we had an hour-long conversation. And, you know, he was fed misinformation by some of his higher ups and others, which 
more or less dictated the way he acted. He was told by Leah Askey to break me. Right. Uh, so there's your 45 minute conversation. Again, he's not using that as an excuse, but moreover, he said, my case has opened his eyes to some of the corruption in his field and to some of the things that go on. And he's dedicated himself to trying to put some of the dirty cops that were involved in my case away and is working with the uh, investigators on that kind of behind the scenes. But he's dedicated to educating others as well. And that's what I told him. You know, he says, I don't know how to make this up to you. He didn't even expect me to apologize, to accept his apology. Uh, but I thank him. I said, you're the first one in law enforcement to do that. That's historic. Thank you. And uh, I said, if you want to make it up to me, be better. Be better. Be a better person yourself. Be a better cop and teach others to be a better cop. Wow. And he said he was going to do that. And I said, I'm going to hold you to the fire on it. I can't, you know, so he actually exchanged numbers with me. I have his number. I texted with him just a couple days ago. So uh, that was, that was a big, big thing. Uh, The first person I called was Ryan Ferguson because he's the only other person I could think of at the time that could understand how that might feel because he's never received an apology. There's another guy, Rodney Lincoln. He's never received an apology. Nobody, none of us exonerates that I know of have received any kind of apology from anybody in law enforcement. So it's very huge. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, it's look there. It's admitting that they fucked up is, is I think, and it's the hard part to do. And kind of like what he said, you know, I buy that story that he was fed misinformation because I can see where they were like, Oh, this guy's guilty as hell. You know, he's just, he's being stubborn, go in there and break him. So he's doing his job as a cop to, to do that, not getting the full story probably like he should have, or, you know, but he's trusting that his other fellow officers are giving him the right guidance and, and right, you know, information to do what he's doing. Exactly. And, and he's, he said, you know, this is wait on him for a very long time. And, uh, you know, he had to just get it off his chest and come over and say, I'm sorry, even if I told him to go screw himself or if I punched him in the head, you know, he said, he fully expected that. He did not expect me to react the way that I did, but he came with his hands like this, uh, you know, offered out to me. And, and I saw that he was being very sincere in what he said, you know, and uh, I accepted his apologies. That's I think it's a pretty big deal. It is. It is a big deal because you would think, you know, for somebody that's went through things like what you went through, you would have a sour taste and, you know, and I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, maybe you wouldn't to obviously some cops, but that's the thing is just because you have experiences with you, a few in your case doesn't mean all cops are bad. You know, just because you have a, a bad experience at one restaurant at Arby's, like you mentioned earlier, doesn't mean every Arby's is going to give you that same experience, but when it happens to you personally, sometimes you just can't help, but to, you know, ah, uh, maybe feel a certain type of way. Hell, it happens to me on certain liquors. If I get real sick off of liquor, it's going to be a while before I mess around with that liquor again. I'm going to sit it on the shelf and not bother it for quite a little while. Right. And, it, and it's true. But, uh, one thing that, and again, I'll drop some names like Brian Ferguson, Ryan Lincoln, Ryan and I just had a, we were at CrimeCon recently, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, in Vegas? Had a conversation. Yeah, out in Vegas. Wow. It was 
he opened it and I closed it. So we were kind of bookends there. That's awesome. Cool. That's awesome. They had, what y'all were like guest speakers. Yes. Yes. He wow. spoke about his particular, uh, situation and his experiences. Uh, Joel and I had a presentation about ours and, uh, you know, he and I say a lot of the same things out there and we had dinner one of those nights that we were out there and, uh, we both agreed that, you know, if you're going to talk to talk, you got to walk the walk. One of the things that he and I and Ryan and a lot of other folks, but I, I use as a motto is that you could be either bitter or you could be better, you know, and if you're bitter, you're going to be miserable for the whole rest of your life or right. you could be a better person. Use, so, use this experience as a motivational tool to get the ball rolling, to try to hopefully prevent it from happening again to somebody else. Because as we said in the beginning of this interview, it happens a lot more than people think. Well, for every one of us that you hear about that's been wrongfully convicted, there's probably 10 or 20 guys that you never do hear about that might rot away in prison without organizations. And I'll use uh, the innocence project because that's the one I support. Uh, but there's organizations out there like that, that one individual that do things to help those guys that maybe don't have the support team. You know, I spoke about a couple other guys throughout this interview, Rodney Lincoln and Brian Ferguson are really good friends of mine. What we all have in common is we all had a champion on the outside. For Ryan, it was his dad, Bill. For Rodney, it was his sister or his daughter, Kay, I'm sorry. And and for me, it was my my cousin, Mary. Right. But a lot of guys don't have that. And that's where organizations like the Innocence Project come in and they help those guys that maybe don't have hope and they help give them that hope. And that's very important. Yeah. Because some people, like you said, this, that's not fortunate enough to have the loved ones to, to help push their case forward and gather information and do that. Cause like we said earlier, a lot of the legwork is dependent on you really. Cause the cops aren't going to do anything to help prove your innocence. I can tell you that. And you know, in some cases, you know, the money's a big aspect. I mean, lawyers ain't free. Um, you know, especially the good ones. And a lot of times innocence projects, they have these lawyers that that is what they do. They do this stuff, you know, pro bono in some cases to help get people out. And you take an average guy that just say he doesn't have any family, say in a situation similar to yours, it's just him and his wife. And this happens. He's got no wife or, you know, no wife at that time. He's got no family to help him. He's got no money to, to buy a paid lawyer. He's got no choice, but to go in jail and ride out whatever sentence he gets. There's no way that somebody's going to be able to help them unless somebody like the innocence project, which you just spoke of, you know, was to hear about this case and get it to them. If you don't have help on the outside is it makes it almost impossible. It does. It's, and, and it's really easy to lose hope when you're behind bars and for somebody, even if it's an organization to be able to give you that hope, uh, that's that's just really big, and I, my heart goes out. And I commend all of those organizations like Innocence Project, absolutely, because they're doing some really good work out there, and they're not getting enough publicity. You know, we we talked about cancer earlier. Cancer's a big deal, and, and I know a lot of people in my family have been affected by cancer, but you always hear about the Cancer Society, right? That they, they, they get a lot of publicity, so they get a lot of donations and money but you never really hear about organizations like innocence project. So I've kind of dedicated myself to putting them out there. Well, anything that uh, we can do at crime and entertainment to help you, 
let us know. I would be more than happy to, to join any sort of movement or, or charity or something like that that you have because you said it exactly right. It's a huge deal. It's not looked at enough. It's almost like one of those things to where when people hear about it, it's almost like a, a black eye on our justice system because we like to think our justice system is, is correct and fair and always right, and it's not the case. No, we have a great justice system, but uh, like with anything else, there are things wrong with it. Yeah. And uh, it's like when your car breaks down, you go get it fixed. Well, there are a lot of things that have been broken with our justice system for a very long time and caused other things to break down. So they need to be fixed. And, you know, my, I'm out there trying to end wrongful convictions and prosecutorial immunity because those things have affected me. Absolutely. And I know the most about them. So the way I feel is if you see something wrong with this world and there's a million and one things, we'll all agree on that. That's great. But if you see something that's wrong with the world and you're in a position to possibly change that one thing and you don't, aren't you part of the problem? Exactly. I'm in a position, I have a voice that I can speak out for these things. And so I'm using it to try and do something good for folks. And that's, uh, we all agree. If one person spends even an hour locked up for something they didn't do, that's an hour too long. Absolutely. <laughs> you got that right. Um, and like we said earlier, it happens way more than people realize and you know what you're doing what you your guys like yourself ryan ferguson rodney lincoln i mean uh, it's fantastic and like i said we'll support you at crime entertainment any way that we can uh we hope to get this episode out here sooner than later um and please put me in contact with those guys because those are shows that like i said obviously everybody likes a good crime or you know a good mob story or whatever you know a good book or whatever but these are the stories that really need to be forefront because they're about real people, real life. They're affecting people that should not be put in these situations. And that's the real stories that need to be prevalent. I understand TV shows are, are good to watch and their people relax and, you know, enjoy themselves. But these are the stories that people really need to see because like we said earlier, it don't, it just takes one freak thing. Like you got this bat shit, crazy woman, Pam, that, concocted this whole fucking ordeal in her head you're dealing with life as it is with your wife and her being sick this is probably the last thing that you thought would ever happen and it completely flips your life upside down oh yeah it's just it's been an incredible story and it's been going on for 11 years now and it still might be a year or two before we ever see a trial right um Obviously, I don't know if you've seen anything about Pam miniseries out there. Yeah. And uh, we've had six day lines. Uh, if you want a really, really good account, uh, get the book Bone Deep uh, by Charles Bosworth and my attorney, Joel Schwartz. That's a book we're supporting out there. That, okay. Well, I'm supporting it, of course. But uh, that's really, really good detailed account of this story. Uh, Joel provided a lot of the good technical information. And Charles is an author. He's a best-selling author. He wrote a book about the uh, Paula Sims case. Okay. And uh, he has a way of bringing you right into the moment and making it real emotional. And uh, well, we'll it, put, it's a really good book. So We'll put a link to that in our show notes for guests that want to go take a, uh, grab that book and get a little bit deeper dive into this case. Russ, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. You've been a fantastic guest. You tell a very uh 
interesting story for sure to say the least. But the one thing I'll, I'll say that I'm astonished by is you, you seem to have a very positive outlook on things, even after everything that you've been through. And that is a rarity. You know, there's a, there's a saying and a meme that gets floated around now on like the TikToks and, and shit like that. And it says, beware of people that are still living when they've been through things that are meant to destroy them. And you're still going, you're still kicking and you're doing it with a smile. And that's the, I think the, the, what people need to see here uh, through everything that you've been through. So congratulations on your freedom. Congratulations on the work that you're doing. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Jay. I, I always enjoy the opportunity to share uh, my story so that I can have the opportunity to raise the awareness for the things we talked about. Uh, I appreciate you giving me that chance to do that tonight. Absolutely, man. The pleasure was all mine. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Hollywood Raid. That was Russ Faria. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Russ, we appreciate it, my friend. Well, boy, oh, boy, I don't even know what to say. That one right there was a hell of a story. You know, thank goodness for lawyers like Joel who fight to get guys out that are wrongfully convicted. Folks, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that every person sitting inside a prison cell is innocent because that would be a ball-faced lie. There's people that deserve to be there and probably people that should never see the light of day. But there is also a very big number of people that do not deserve to be there when you have short-sightedness by the police when you have tunnel vision people don't you know investigate properly they don't you know look at the evidence that's right there in front of them sometimes you get short-sighted and you innocent people go to jail and if people don't have the money to pay good lawyers then they have to defend on public defenders and we know some public defenders are just fucking idiots I mean, you know, God forbid, God bless them, but some of them don't really have a clue what they're doing. Now, there are some great public defenders out there as well, you know, but that's the thing is you don't, you don't have no control over that. You get what you get. Their resources are very limited, unlike a paid lawyer. So it's hard. It's hard sometimes. They do the best they can, but nine times out of 10, you wind up having to plea to a deal that you're not even guilty of just so you won't get the full amount. So you think if you're looking at 20 years, the you know public defender says, well, if you plead guilty, we can you know get it down to fifteen good behavior, maybe out in ten or eleven. You, that's something you have to weigh on your mind to take because if you go to trial, you might not ever get out of jail again. So that's the system that we're with, ladies and gentlemen. And I think that people don't realize enough how many innocent people go behind bars day in and day out all across this country. Fortunately, Russ was able to get his wrong righted. He was able to get out write this book, tell his story, come on podcasts like mine and many others. And this is not the first time this has happened. Unfortunately, it probably will not be the last, but getting guys like Russ to get their story out there, we're going to hook up with a few other people that he said was that he knows that were wrongfully convicted, get their stories out there, because that is the best way to keep this from happening again, ladies and gentlemen, because I think people don't want to admit that our justice system is flawed. You know, we like to think, oh, well, if we see on the news they arrested this person for that crime, oh, if they arrested him, they must have done it. That's not always the case, ladies and gentlemen. you got to take things 
at very little face value here because you don't know the details. You don't know everything that happened. And you, you just can't trust the news media either. I mean, they're going to twist it because they're being fed bullshit stories by the cops. So the media is going to post what they want to post. So you, you can't trust the media either. And like I said, again, thank God for lawyers like Joel and other ones that do the work to help right these kind of wrongs, because that is the last thing we want someone to do. Not only, you know, be wrong, lose a, a loved one, a wife, but then to be put in jail for killing him when you had nothing at all to do with it. It turned out to be a psychotic lady named Pam. Well, who I recommend anybody to go check out that story and also pick up Russ's book, Bone Deep. We'll put a link to that in our show notes on the YouTube side of things, as well on all of our social medias. Speaking of the social medias, folks, please head on over there and like us on all of those. We would really appreciate it. We're on TikTok, Crime and Entertainment. We're on Instagram, Crime, the letter N, and Entertainment. Also on the Facebooks, Crime and Entertainment. Go give us a like and follow and all that good stuff. On the Apples, iPods, you know, whatever you listen. Apple, Android, it doesn't matter. We're on Google, uh, Stitcher. We're on any app you can think of, folks, to go get your podcast. So go give us a like, follow, Purple Heart, four stars, five stars, whatever it is. Drive us up the charts. That's how you can help us out. We really appreciate it. And please share, share the show. We hope everybody enjoyed this edition of Crime and Entertainment. We'll be back here Wednesday because I'm going to make it up for missing last week with an extra episode of an adult entertainer. That's right. We're going back into the adult entertainment field. We're going to interview Kennedy Rose, and boy, is that a good one. So stay tuned. Lots of good content headed your way here on Crime and Entertainment.